Bike races and bike events are back in a big way in 2021. And if you are an Active Pass member, you get access to some of the coolest bike events around. That's right, it's the Roll Massif lineup of events. Eight events, gravel, road, and mountain bike sprinkled throughout the spring, summer, and fall. You can learn all about them by going to rollmassif.com. And if you are an Active Pass member, you get 25% off registration to any of these events, plus you get free entry to the June 6th Elephant Rock ride down in Douglas County, Colorado. What is Elephant Rock? It's a true Colorado cycling classic dating back more than 30 years. There is the 100-mile course, the 60-mile course, and the 44-mile course, plus there is a gravel course, 28.5 miles, and a family ride that's eight miles, so there's something for every member of the family. You can come down, make an entire weekend out of it, and expose anyone in your family to cycling with one of these great distances. So to learn more about all the cool stuff you get with Active Pass, go to velonews.com forward slash Active Pass. You can learn about the events, the deal from sponsors, training advice, magazines, books, all the cool stuff you get. Again, velonews.com forward slash active pass okay let's get on with today's show uh welcome back to the vel news podcast fred dreyer coming to you from ah these these tuesday mornings are so busy maybe i need to start doing the podcast over the weekend or something uh we have a great podcast today uh no guest today we are just going to get into all the thrilling world tour racing that's gone on in the last week with a crazy edition of perry nice primos roglic dominating the race and then crashing and losing the yellow jersey right at the end we have james start on the line james was there and then we're gonna talk all about uh, tirreno adriatico which i gotta say at this point tirreno this one week of racing might be the best solid like pound for pound week of racing uh, of the last year or so. I mean, no days off, stars in action, Van Aert winning two stages, Pogachar winning the overall. I mean, just edge of your seat, really good stuff. If you're a bike racing fan, then the last week has been like a, a pig in your pigsty, just sucking it down. Um, and then just all sorts of other fun stuff going on here. I, I don't know if the listeners heard, but in Colorado here, we got a uh, two and a half foot snowfall, which, uh, came a day late a two and a half snowfall comes a day late uh it means that there's like an extra element of cabin fever because you like plan for it so we had all these plans to do fun stuff and then we canceled them because this big snowfall was coming we just stayed indoors and hunkered down and then uh and then we waited and waited and waited and then the snow fell and then we were really indoors so uh, all that's to say if i sound a little twisted this week it's because i've been inside for a few days on end and if there's like screeching children in the background, screeching child. That is my child because she's been inside as well. But hey, it's just, it's the way it is. Podcasting in a pandemic. We're getting through this thing. All right, let's get to uh, the topic du jour. Uh, on the line today, we have, of course, Andrew Hood and James Start. Andrew Hood, I'm going to start with you before we get to James. You know, Andy, you were watching Perry Nice and Tirreno this week, no doubt. I mean, as a, just a consumer of the bike racing product as a fan of cycling. What are some of the takeaways that you have from this like last 10 days of bike racing? That's right. We were expecting fireworks for Tirreno and it certainly delivered. You know, every day was kind of a, a classic style race. It was either kind of a, a repeat of uh, Strada Bianca and then the next day it was a San Remo and then the next day was kind of an Ardent style race. 
And every day the hitters were out there and even had a nice mountaintop finish and a time trial. So it's really, I think, Torino, you know, they kind of hit the formula right, you know, long, hard stages, lumpy, but not so difficult that it blows out the GC in one day. It keeps things tight and in, in, uh, kind of going into the, the final uh, time trial. And man, with the, with the heavy hitters they had at the start list, you know, they just had all the hitters. I mean, uh, Perinese, you know, I love, I'm a big fan of Perinese as well, but right now it definitely had the start list this year. And it was great racing at uh, Vanderpool, Alaphilippe, Pogacar, uh, you know, Wild Van Aert, uh, all the hitters. And it was. Yeah, it was kind of like watching your favorite. It was like going to a festival, I feel like, and seeing all of your bands with short sets, but kind of like experimental and like playing the hits. Um, you know, it's not the Tour de France, not three weeks. It's not the Giro where there's like a couple days off or a uh, transition stage, sprint stage. It's just like every day, it's like, oh, Matthew Vanderpool is going for a 50-kilometer solo breakaway. Sure. You know, Wout Van Aert is lighting it up and becoming a GC rider before our very eyes. Sure. Great. Uh, just thrilling stuff day in, day out. You didn't know what was going to happen. Now, James, you were at Perry Nice this year. Uh, you were uh, on, the, on the back of a motorcycle. And, um, you know, what What can you tell us about the sense and feeling of what it was like inside the race boat? I mean, remember, this was the last race of 2020 before the pandemic shut everything down. They were, you know, it was very nervous as the race was going on. The global situation around COVID was changing. You know, what was it like to be back there one year later? And what was the mood and feeling like inside the Peloton and inside the race? There's a bit of a paradox. And some things are pretty much business as usual and have changed seemingly very little. And other things are very, very different. So there's, you know... Once the race actually starts, it's a bike race, right? And we all have – we know what that's all about. And the guys are racing with or without fans. They're racing all out. Um, and then – but then, you know, all at the start and finish, there's no fans. Uh, everybody's in their little bubbles. And those things are very different. Um, and then, yes, as you, as you mentioned, um, you know, there's many times that, you know, I was thinking back just a year ago, we stepped out of Paris and went right into two months of lockdown. Uh, and actually, they're talking about taking France back in the total lockdown again any day now, or at least lots of areas. And and, and actually, Nice, that whole region of the last weekend was in total lockdown, total confinement. Um, it was even a question if we we're going to have the race. The city of Nice did not want the race again to come, so they the organizers had to find an alternative, which, of course, they did, um, and, and good ones at that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, some things are really like business as usual, and some things are very, very different. And I can tell you, like – and you know, I don't want to sound spoiled or anything, but you know, one of the one of the great things about our jobs is always you never knew who you're going to see when you went to a race, but you're always going to see some friends and you hook up for dinner after a long day. And you know, dinners in your hotel room get old real quick. And there's especially since most of these hotels are um, using it as a pretext to save a lot of money. And I've spent more money on a frozen. Uh, on a frozen hashi parmentier than I've ever could have imagined this week. Um, I mean, the food, the food quality is just awful and just sitting there all alone or, you know, in my case, sometimes with my moto driver. And it just, it's, you know, it's, it's like, it's such a grind. It takes so much of the fun out of actually being at a race. So there's certain things, you know, I mean, the, the racing itself, when you're on the, when I was on the bike, it's just like any other day at a race, you know? And I would say that the mood in the Peloton, is I think people have, you know, the guys have gotten used to this. I mean, we've been racing now for almost two months in France. Every race in France maintained uh, and went along according to schedule with different 
different um, protocols. Um, so the guys, you know, they just kind of accept that as the new reality. What do you say, James, about the um, the access to the riders as a media person? You know, we've seen that change and evolve over the last year too. You know, at a place like Paris Nice. I mean, how are you, you know, are you able to talk to the riders? Are the riders coming out? And what do you expect to see with the media access going forward, um, you know, even after, dare I say it, the pandemic, um, after after we move past the pandemic? What are you expecting to see there? I think like a lot of things in, in life, you know, there's just going to be certain things that aren't going to go back to, it's not going to be business as usual. There's certain things that are going to be permanent. And um, I think that... The whole, we might not be in bubbles, but the whole, we've, you know, we've constructed this thing where journalists can no longer go anywhere close to buses, right? Most of the time. Some of the smaller races, you can kind of weave your way in and out, but it's really hard to get around there. That, that's closed off. The riders come out, they go to sign in, and there's this mix zone where you're allowed to mix. Now, I got to say, I'm no doctor, but I, I, so what is the whole idea of bubbles and separating the different groups if you let them interact in certain areas? Um, I, I don't quite get that up, but again, I'm not a total, you know, doctor, but I mean, the media, uh, agents who are supposed to be in their bubbles uh, with the team are coming out and mixing with us and talking with us and saying, who do you want to talk to? They can, then they go back into the bubble. And if anybody outside the bubble uh, gives them COVID, they take it right inside. And I think we kind of saw that in Jiro where, you know, once you, you crease these bubbles, but if the COVID gets inside, then it's really a problem. So it's, it, it's kind of crazy intense, but I do think that the mix zones are going to last, and that's not something I'm happy about. Um, but I think the riders like it. I think the teams like it. It's easier to organize for basic Qs and As. Um, but for anything beyond that, it's really tough. For something as simple as going up to a, a mechanic or a team and saying, hey, can I get a picture of your bike? Now, all Velo, not all, but many Velo News readers really like tech pictures of different riders' bikes. And we don't have to talk to anybody, don't have to contact with anybody or touch anybody or get close to anybody, just taking pictures of bikes. And even something as simple as that is getting very difficult. And that's that's a problem, you know? I mean, that's that's going to really affect the way that we report on things. So, guys, the story of Perinese really, in my eyes, was the, um, the complete domination of Primoz Roglic winning three stages, having an extremely strong team, Yumbo Visma really asserting its control all the, on the peloton, and then Roglic losing this race on the final day after he crashed twice, you know, tore up his short, sounds like he dislocated his shoulder, was not able to catch back on. And, um, you know, I, I wrote a column about this, about how Roglic has now lost three races in really heartbreaking manner, you know, on the final day or the penultimate day between the Dauphiné last year, the Tour de France, and then this race. Um, in the last eight months, actually three of his last four stage races have kind of had the same rhythm to them of early dominance, team strength, protecting the lead, the guy looking completely bulletproof, but they're always store sort of being a little margin there. And then just right at the worst possible time, there's a crash or, a, you know, a bad time trial or whatever. Pogachar comes alive and, you know, he, he falls from the top of the leaderboard. You know, James, we'll get to you in a second because you were there. But Andy, I mean, what's your takeaway about this run of results and what it means for Roglic and uh, Yumbo Visma? Yeah, that was a nice article you wrote, Fred, because, you know, you also, he also almost lost uh, the Welta Espana on the last day last year as well. Had that final climb to, to La Cobatia been about another kilometer longer, 
uh, Carapaz would have gotten the better of Roglic, I think, that day. Yeah, it's kind of, it's an interesting little quirk. I mean, he's coming out being so dominant. The team is so deep. And then something, there's like a hiccup, you know, it's a, a crack in the sidewalk. A black cat crosses his path. You know, maybe the guy's cursed. And, you know, it, it, it's not like that. He's, he's obviously a world-class rider, and that's just bike racing too. But you just wonder if that little seed of doubt is going to go into his head. And so far, he's been saying, oh, you know, no problem. The world keeps turning. It's a bike race. I don't lose faith in, or my confidence in myself, and we're going to keep right racing the same way as a team. But at a certain point, you know, that might become almost like a jinx, right? So, uh, especially when you have uh, Pagaccia and these other riders, uh, not, no one's going to wait for uh, Rowich for his bad luck to uh, you know, throwing salt over his shoulder in the middle of a stage race, you know? So, it's going to be interesting to see how he plows through that because I think, you know, the, knowing the way Rowich races, he'll just come, you know, teeth gnashing and just plow right through anything in front of him. And, uh, you know, is it just a hiccup or is this a start of some sort of kind of uh, – a curse or something on a road, which is going to be interesting to watch to see if that does become this psychological factor in his mind going forward into this season. Yeah, James, I mean, you were there. What did you see? I I saw a lot and I have a lot of thoughts about it. Um, let me just start out by saying what I saw at the end. So I heard he was dropped. And when, when you're on a motorbike, you're getting stuff over the radio and not seeing it on TV. What I didn't see was that he was within four seconds of getting back to the pack, but the pack was fucking driving. Sorry. <laughs> the pack was driving it. And, uh, you know, wait a minute. Don't we stop when the yellow jersey crashes? Don't we wait for the yellow jersey? What happened there? That didn't happen. And he chased madly. I thought when he knew the race was over, I was going to see him and his whole team kind of, kind of coming up that final climb in a sort of, you know, funeral procession sort of thing, you know? And he was racing like he was still trying to make it. I mean, I, I had a lot of respect for him. And then I saw him afterwards. And, you know, I mean, the first thing, his priority was getting his kid in his arms and, and talking with his kid. And that, you know, and he really did not seem that phased. I'll be honest about it. Now, a lot of things, however, I would say, so I have immense respect for the way he fought back, held on, raced with dignity to the end. I really, I mean, just he floored me with that. However, I think there are some ten- some trends happening here, not necessarily Roglic, but I think the team. I think the team needs to rethink things. For the- I've been talking with directors and riders for a while, and I keep hearing a lot of people going. The problem with Jumbo is that they are too dominant. When they're strong, they crush everybody. They leave no chance for anybody else to win the smaller stage. I talked. I spent this winter in Guadeloupe, and just by chance, I was about eight kilometers from. Uh, Jean-René Bernadot, the manager of the Total Direct Energy team. And he was like, you know, any other big powerhouse team gives us little teams a chance for a stage here and a stage there, and Jumbo doesn't give us any chances. And we saw that very clearly on the penultimate stage when this kid from Marie, uh, uh, Bahrain, you know, rode tremendously off the front all day, looked like he had the stage in his hand, and Roglic, you know, at the end, the team chased him down, and the last 100 meters, he passed him and dropped him. For a stage victory, did he need a third stage victory? He'd already shown he's the strongest. No, he did not. But his mentality and team's mentality is winners take all, anytime, any place. That's fine. That's a, that's one school of bike racing. But there's another school of bike racing that says if you don't, if you if you if you are too greedy, then when you need, you won't have any friends when you need them. And the next day, he needed some friends. He needed somebody in there to go. Hey, Rogel just crashed again. Uh, you know, this is not a, the way we want to win a race. We should slow down and wait for him. Nobody did that. 
they were balls out racing to drop him, to drop the other jersey who was on the ground. Why? Probably because the, the Jumbo Visma team had, I think what happened the day before came back to haunt them. And I think, I think that that sort of style of bike racing uh, is something that they've been doing for the last couple of years. And if it's not with Roglic, then it's with, you know, with Van Aert. They're just totally dominating. And so as soon as it, anybody sees the smallest opening, they don't care about like old school bike racing unspoken rules. They're just like, we got them. We got them pinned. We got a chance to, to get something here. Let's get it. And I think maybe they ought to take a look back and go, you know, we're going to the next year's Tour de France. We need to think about this as a three-rate race with a bigger picture and maybe not, you know, be flexing our muscles too early. That's what, for example, one more, like, uh, was it Simon Yates who, who crushed, uh, who, um, in the Giro two, three years ago failed, you know, folded in the last three days, right? Well, he learned from that in the Vuelta and came back and, and won the Vuelta using using that and i think that the jumbo visma team needs to learn from these mistakes yeah i agree with you on that one james you know and that was my big takeaway from the tour de france which is jumbo comes in they're very strong they exert their dominance early you know from the gun winning team time trials winning uphill finishes you know squashing the peloton and you know roglic grabbing stage wins early and then they have to hold on to this yellow jersey for day after day after day after day and, you know, Roglic is in the media hot seat and he's doing the interviews and he's staying up late and getting up early. And, you know, at some point, the accrued energy around that means that, you know, in that final time trial, I mean, he's good, but he's not great. He's not world beating great. And I do wonder about that with, uh, you know, even something like Perry Nice, which is you see Yumbo is on the front every day, day in, day out. Roglic is razor sharp day in, day out. But at that one moment when it doesn't happen, it happens at the end. It's like never, it's never like these things are happening early in the race and then they're coming back or sort of at the midpoint. It's just the finish line is in sight. And that is when the calamity is happening. And, and, you know, we can navel gaze and hypothesize for weeks on end and really not come to it. But part of it, part of me wonders if it, you know, these things are happening at the end of races because Yumbo and Roglic are choosing to get out of the gate fast and the psychological pressure and the meat grinder of being in the hot seat for that long at some point there's a weakness or a lapse or a momentary whatever and it happens and then like you said because they've made no friends in the peloton you know uh, whoever is saying well you know Unwritten rule, be damned. Let's uh, let's put the pedal to the metal on this one. Well, and, and you know, the flip side, you know, Bogachar was the exact same opposite. You know, he – exact same opposite. He was the opposite. I mean, he lost time midway through the tour last year. No pressure on him. Let Jumbo take all the pressure and then bang, he pounced when he had to. And, you know, maybe if, 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 if Roglic had not been in control of, of the jersey, was it, he would have been able to exploit – uh, his opponents better in the final week of the tour. So we're going to, I'm really be curious to see if they change their approach. Um, but I think they've, they've had enough opportunities to see that right now they're very vulnerable. They're having trouble closing the deal and they need to work on that. What do you think, Andy Hood? I mean, do you think Yumbo should move away from this seizing the early lead strategy? fast out of the gate, flex your muscles, show everyone how strong you are, or do you think that's working for them? I, I think it's I think it's working for them. I think part of the what's happening with Yubo right now is is um, I think they're trying to race in the same mentality of Enios, 
back when they had the Froome train. That's the model they've gone after. And I think uh, Rillwich is just a different style of rider. And I do agree with what both of you said in terms of uh, sharing some of the wealth or, or taking unnecessary risks that kind of bites them at the end of a race. Like last year when uh, Van Aert was still winning some of those sprint stages and contesting those, I was really surprised to see that because I thought, okay, let Wout get his win, you know, pull him back, keep him fresh for when it really counts because he's a huge motor for that team. And I felt like that, um, you know, that they were just kind of unnecessarily burning matches that they didn't need to during that race. And I think if, if James is, I agree with James, I think they'll, tr- they'll take some lessons from that. But in terms of changing the way Roglic races, I would say no, because it's so close in the Pelotons today that you need those finish line time bonuses. You have to go for the win, you know, maybe con- conserving and controlling the rest of your team and only really going for it with, uh, with the, your, your leader. But I think that, um, you know, you can't hold back and say, well, gee, I'm going to peak on stage 17 when you're feeling really good at stage six. The human body is not, uh, they're not quite robots yet. They're trying to be robots. Not quite robots yet. So I think if you got the legs, you got to go for it. And just, just one cl- closing. Uh, that's a good point. And one closing remark. Again, uh, I was really impressed with the way he handled the defeat on all levels. And, you know, this is maybe just the way he prefers to race. I don't know. Uh, and, you know, it's just grab everything you can when you can. And if it doesn't work out in the final, that, I mean, he was not at all bitter. There was no complaints that the guys were attacking him. Uh, that he lost the way he lost. It was, it was just like, Hey, I won three stages. I gave it my all, had a little bit of bad luck, didn't go perfectly. And I lost. And there's other things in life. And that's a pretty, you know, a pretty uh, respectable way to race as well. It's not maybe the traditional way to race. It's not the way we've been schooled, but it's, it's interesting, but this is a new generation. So we'll see where it goes. Yeah. I, I'm with you on that one. It, you know, he is very gracious and admirable in defeat. You know, I watched that code yellow Dutch documentary they made the behind the scenes Yumbo Visma film. And, you know, I kept watching it, you know, trying to see sour grapes or some, you know, attitude or whatever out of Pogacha or out of uh, Roglic. And no, it's very even keeled very well. I did what I best I could. You know, the, the most telling point of that film is the last five minutes where he's having to internalize and deal with this defeat after the time trial. And he's eaten his post-race food and talking with team staffers and every now and again he closes his eyes and just sort of like feels the moment and i think i wrote this in the column it's like god to understand the the cocktail of emotions going through his mind at that moment when victory has been snatched from his hand defeat has been shoved in his mouth with, with the finish line in sight and um He's yeah, he's still he's this chill customer. He's not pissed off. There's no attitude. He just kind of takes it, takes his lumps and gets right back at it. Yeah, it's an interesting observation with that that movie because I watched part of that as well. And it always just goes back to what uh, Johan Museo told me once. I, I saw him one time at the Quick Step Camp, maybe two years ago. I think James, you were there, and I was just talking to him, and and the conversation came up about winning. You know what it takes to be a winner at this level, and he goes, "You cannot assume." Did you ever get another chance to win again? I think we were talking about Peter Sagan. It's like, oh, is Sagan going to finally win San Remo this year? And this was a year or two ago already. And he's like, you can never in cycling, can you ever assume that just because it's like a stock, you know, a stock has gone up, doesn't mean it's going to keep going up in the future. And the same with a professional race like Roglic, yeah, it might not bug him now because he thinks he'll be able to get back there again. But he might never get back in a position to win that Tour de France again. And, you know, we got Pagachar. He just, he, I was doing some statistical work. He's won 50% of 
of all stage races he started so far in his career. And so, you know, Roglic might never, never win the Tour de France. And uh, guys like Sagan might never win another big race again with these guys well coming up and, and Vanderpool. I think it's why every big winner tries to win every chance they get because they know something might happen the next day. Okay. Well, that's a great segue into talking about the current big, big, big winner in pro cycling, which is Matthew Vanderpool and him putting on an absolute show at Tirreno Adriatico. We saw him win uh, two stages, an uphill sprint ahead of Julian Philippe. But then, guys, we got to talk about it. This 50-kilometer solo breakaway in the rain on a hilly circuit on stage five. And, you know, he uh, could tell he's amped up at the midpoint of the stage. He's attacking. He's pushing the pace. He's drying out guys. You know, at one point we saw a break, you know, we saw front group with like Wout Van Aert, Matthew Vanderpool, um, Pogacar, Sergio Higuita, Egan Bernal. I mean, it's just like the who's who of World Tour Cycling just blow for blow with like 55K still to go. And then Vanderpool goes out there. And at one point he had like two minutes on these guys. And then he starts to lose steam in the last 10K or so and holds on, holds off Pogacar by a handful of seconds to win this stage. You know, Andy, as you're watching that, I mean, do you see that as Vanderpool is you know, digging himself as deep as he can before Flanders and Roubaix. Is this he just wants to try and win in a new way? What's your read on Vanderpool, specifically on this stage five, you know, going for something, a 50K breakaway against not just – this isn't just Bink Bank Tour. This was like all-star cast of Tour de France champions and big rivals and he's still throwing caution to the wind. And doing a move like that. What was your read on that? Yeah, I was blown away by that uh, whole stage. You know, that, that just reminded me of just what what class uh, Vanderpool has to be able to have the engine to do that. And then just to have the, the mindset and the kind of the, uh, you know, he's not afraid to lose. That's what's great about some of these new riders coming up is that they'll take risks in order to win rather than just trying to get the win with the odds in your favor. That's how so much cycling has really progressed over the last 10 or 15 years is racing by numbers, you know, going after the odds, kind of like this, uh, kind of like just batting the odds and just say, well, you have a better chance to win if you stay in the bunch and then attack in the last K or last 500 meters. And some of these guys just are not playing by their rule book. And I think it's absolutely fantastic. It's, it's what cycling needs to excite new fans. And it's, it's just great to watch. And I think it's what it does really is set the tone for Vanderpool. I think part of it might be that he's trying a couple of big digs to get in his legs going into the classics because I think he's very ambitious about the Northern Classics. And you're seeing other writers like uh, Joubert was doing that and some of the, you know, even Van Abermatt, you're seeing some of these older guys doing these big efforts. But Vanderpool just has the class to make it really count and, you know, hang on to win the stage. So I think he's one of the most exciting writers we've seen. Ah, man, I'm one of the most exciting writers I've ever seen in my career covering the sport. Pretty exciting. I'm really looking forward to what he can do this year in the spring classics. Well, it's, it's interesting, Andy, that I didn't watch the racing, obviously, because I was on a motor watching a different race. But I was talking with Johan Museo this morning, actually. Um, and I'm writing up a piece for us for tomorrow. And it was pretty fascinating uh, what he had to say. And he was like, I'm loving this, but I'm going, this is crazy. What are these guys doing? He, like, I called up. Vanderpool's dad, Audrey, I said, Audrey, this is crazy. Why is he going so hard every day? Um, because he said, you know, back in my day, I came into Torino and I would always pick one stage where I'd really go for the win, really go all out. And then I'd be Gruppetto and start, you know, just check my form. 
make sure I was everything was on track. And then save it for the big races, the monuments. He said, because if you're going all out every day at Torino for a week-long race, it's going to take you a week, a week to recover. And we got Milan San Remo in less than a week. So he's, he said, I really love it as a spectator. But as a guy who, you know, spent a lot of time preparing for big, big wins, uh, I'm not quite sure what they're doing. I mean, these guys have been going, he's, he's been going for the last, you know, all winter long in cyclocross and he's not letting up. And w- is that going to come back and bite him is essentially what he's going to say. And he said, I mean, he said, you know, he, look, he said, I loved watching the, the 60 kilometer breakaway. But if he's going on a breakaway because he's cold, he said, well, why don't you just go back to his team car and get a, and get a jacket and sit in the Peloton warm and save his energy? You know, that's another way of thinking. And that, but that's, that's a, that's a perspective from, you know, a three-time winner of Flanders and a three-time winner of Roubaix. Um, that's not a, uh, you know, it's not a, a couch potatoes perspective. We love it as couch potato, but I thought it was pretty interesting, uh, insight. And he said the same thing about Woot and, and, and Alaphilippe a little bit less. He thought Alaphilippe was, you know, he, he had that one big stage and then, and then kind of backed off one day with some mechanical, but, um, you know, he, he thinks that maybe Alaphilippe's done a little bit more of a classic preparation. But he said at the same time he said you know these guys these three riders in particular are just you know a breed apart. I mean he said they're like they're such big champions at such a high level that maybe they can do this. So he, he he's not he wasn't critical at all. He was just sort of in dismay and and wondering. And he's we're going to be looking at the the monuments coming up with with a real you know, really curious eye. Having interviewed Johan Musea a few times, I can absolutely envision and hear him saying what you just said. Oh, why is it? That? I, love, I love the cadence of that guy's voice. He's uh, he's great. I know. I think uh, it was Mikael Kwiatkowski tweeted out after that stage, you know, Tirreno Adriatico stage five is the sixth monument, you know, because of how, how epic it was. But that's an interesting question that he raises. And it is definitely something that, that is just going to be a storyline of this season, you know. Matthew Vanderpoel has been going hot throughout 2020 into the cyclocross season, no days off, right into the classics. Whereas Wout Van Aert, you know, he took a couple of days off. He did an altitude camp. He's kind of building back into it. And is Vanderpoel going to be able to keep the spear sharp for the entire block of racing? Or at some point, are we going to see the lights go out? Uh, and, and will Wout Van Aert then build back into it? I don't know. We have Milan San Remo this weekend and then it just comes hot and fast, you know, E3, Genwebelgam, Flanders, Roubaix. We're, we're right in the barrel of the, of the chamber of the gun, uh, headed towards some really cool races. And these guys, you know, what, what he said, you know, he said, the guys at this level, there's only really three races coming up that really matter. And they're the three monuments. It's Milan San Remo, it's Flanders, and it's Fourier. That's where they have to be on, and that's where they have to be not 100% or 110. And we'll, we'll, we'll see. Uh, you know, for a guy like Vanderpool to win E3, I mean, that's, you know, it's small beans, really, in the, in the scope of what should be his career. So we'll see where it goes. I, I mean, I can't wait to, to, to see Milan San Remo. It's absolutely one of my favorite races because it just it comes down to that. I mean, it's like it's not 1% difference. It's a half a percentage difference. And if any one of those guys is a little bit off, or if there's any looking around, then there's going to be somebody else that's going to seize, seize the opportunity. It's going to be really great. And these guys are clouding over all the other potential winners. Don't forget, Melanson Rain was probably, you know, the most open of the, all the classics. And if there's any hesitation on their part on the Poggio, um, then it's going to be an open race. And there's a lot of the guys that are knocking on the door. I mean, hey, Sam Bennett. What's he doing? What's the green jersey doing going on all those mountain breakaways on the final days of Pyrenees? He's preparing Milan San Remo. And if, if this thing comes down to a sprint, he'll be there. I got a question for you, James. Uh, 
Do you see Gilbert winning San Remo, completing the monument sweep? <laughs> as much as I would really, really love it, because I really love Philippe, and I have uh, he's really one of my absolute heroes. I think he's still uh, not quite 100%. Uh, we did a little piece on him. I talked to him at the start of one race, and he said, you know, he's still trying to get his form back um, after his bad crash in the Tour. So it, it might not be this year, but at the same time, he's going to be one of those guys that's going to know how to seize the opportunity. Don't be surprised to see really serious attacks going even before the Tripresso, or at least on the Tripresso, like something you haven't seen in, in recent years. Because there's a lot of guys that know if you wait to the Pojo, they're beat. Well, Milan San Remo is this weekend Saturday. It's always a thrilling race. Well, the last 20 minutes are always quite thrilling. The first uh, three, four, five, six hours, uh, a little tedious, but that's a whole other story. Uh, we're going to be talking all about Milan San Remo on next week's episode of the podcast. We'll have some fun guests as well. Anyway, Thank you to Andrew Hood and James Start for coming on this week's episode of the Vel News Podcast, and we will catch up with you next week. 